should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull****. It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome. Happy Wednesday or happy hump day, I should say. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. It is October 5th. It seems like every day now when you check the news, there is uh, news as far as like loss of life um, and in police custody. And it, it is extremely depressing. And what's most depressing about it is that this is reality. This is happening um, in it's always been happening. It's just that now, as we've been talking about, you know, we've got the cell phones, we've got uh, different ways that people can share the information. But what what's what's even scarier, I think I should say scarier than depressing is the fact that we keep continuing to have these ongoing conversations in which people tend to focus on, you know, taking a side uh, whose lives matter when we're really taking the focus off of what we should be talking about, which is the problem in a, a police state. And when citizens are dying in police custody for Whatever that reason might be, you know, one can sit there and justify that someone deserves to lose their life for what, a small offense? I mean, I can't change your mind. But what I do know is that that is problematic to the country, period. And that is, in my personal opinion, a systematic way of, I'm just going to say it, it's almost almost like it's, you know, genocide of the black community, um, and I stopped short at saying it is genocide just because, again, some of you may disagree with me. And, and the point of this show is really just to share information with you so that you can take away and hopefully become more informed. So I thought that, you know, talking about what's happening here in this country, but in a different way, um, might help us all. So we'll go ahead and, and get today's program started. Today's show is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Very, very excited to uh, introduce our next guest. He is a documentary filmmaker, a notable producer, editor, cinematographer, Craig Atkinson, and he's got a new documentary that I think is is a, going to be a fascinating conversation for us, but also um, deep topic in mind, and, and that is regarding police brutality and also the militarization of police here in this country. And that title of that documentary is Do Not Resist. Let's welcome Craig to the program. Craig, thanks so much for joining us. Hi there. Yeah, thanks so much for being interested in the film. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Uh, we've been obviously covering you know racial issues here on the program all year long, but I think every single media 
company out there is talking about this, whether in a positive way or a negative way or, you know, with a motive. Um, I sadly have not been able to screen the film before talking to you, but it might be a good thing. And, and that is because I think having the conversation and then seeing it, um, you know, might have the impact that I'm looking for. So let's talk about Do Not Resist. Uh, this is a documentary looking into the militarization of police in the United States. Um, yeah, tell us about it. Yeah, sure. So we started about a year prior to Ferguson. Um, I, my father was a police officer for 29 years outside of, of Detroit, and he was actually a SWAT officer for 13 of those years. And so I kind of grew up with uh, being at least peripherally um, exposed to SWAT of kind of like the war on drugs era of policing. This is around like the late 80s, early 90s when he became a SWAT officer. And I hadn't thought about SWAT since he retired in 2002 until I saw the response in the days after the Boston Marathon bombing. Uh, And I think it was the first time that most Americans saw the level of equipment um, that police had been given um, that throughout making the film we, we realized was uh, given to police post 9-11. But it was more so the officer mentality. I was shocked to see officers entering homes without search warrants, uh, warrants despite uh, citizens' protests that they would rather not have the police enter the homes. We subsequently uh, interviewed people in the Boston area who experienced that and said, yeah, you know, we were handcuffed face down on our lawns for as much as six hours without being told why we were being detained and no child charges filed afterwards. And so to me, it just spoke of perhaps that we've departed from the protect and serve model that we expect of our officers and maybe have moved more into an occupying force. At least that's what it felt like to me in the days after the Boston Marathon bombing. So that was the genesis of the project. Mm-hmm. And we started um, building relationships with police departments to film and see what was going on uh, with American police forces. And I, I would approach basically most oftentimes in person uh, and just promise them the only thing that we had to promise, which was an authentic betrayal of whatever we did together. And um, we certainly came through on that word um, with the scenes that we show and do not resist. Mm-hmm. What was, um, I mean, was there anything shocking for you in kind of learning about or establishing this relationship with police departments? Um, or, you know, did you kind of already... Do we, I mean, if from the viewer's point of view, I think that all of us have this perception of what police means to us in our communities and that it's okay for them to have all this gear that, you know, so uh, (laughs) protective of themselves, but, but not as citizens of the United States. I mean, it's, there's a difference there. Was there anything, yeah, shocking that you found out? Well, you know, I think, you know, personally, you know, uh, there's a lot of equipment that I don't have a, an issue with. And I think that, you know, look no further than the Pulse nightclub shooting where the police took an armored vehicle and used it to puncture a hole in the side of the wall and to rescue the hostages inside. I mean, that's a fantastic use of protective equipment. However, what we, what we found through the course of making the film is that although it's always uh, pitched to the community that it's going to be used to fight terrorism, almost you know, 10 times out of 10, it's used for um, search warrants and oftentimes for drug offenses. And what I found anecdotally going through all the SWAT raids that I did over the course of three years, that it's almost always used for low-level drug offenses. So, you know, here we are, um, you know, faced with, you know, um, the 
used from saying that we need it for one thing and then it's turned around and used for something entirely different. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's the, you know, the, the real issue is that there's been a significant mission creep um, with the uh, amount of deployment that SWAT actually has. I mean, to give you some context, my father was on SWAT for 13 years. And during that time, his team conducted 29 search warrants total. And you contrast that to teams that we went out with during the course of making this film. And they're doing raids three to four times a day, over 200 a year. And so there's been a significant mission increase as far as how we're using um, SWAT teams. I mean, any felony search warrant in the St. Louis County area is issue, is um, conducted by the SWAT team. And there's plenty of felony warrants that aren't going to be violent offenses that police are still going in homes with a tremendous amount of firepower, um, despite there being a a known threat in the home. Mm -hmm. For example, I raided a house uh, where I was filming uh, the raid of a house in St. Louis County, and it was for child pornography. So essentially, they they were going in to capture a computer. Well, we went in at like 1 o'clock in the morning and broke out, you know, the door to rush in this home. Well, the gentleman wasn't even there, but his parents were home, and his parents thought that they were being broken into and robbed. And so, you know, some, some there's been some cases where people reach for a weapon, and then they had uh, a police officer in there getting themselves killed, and the cops weren't even, you know, supposed to be in that house to begin with. Um, so, you know, when you're doing this frequency of raids time and time again throughout the year, it's going to lead to mistakes. And if, even if it's not going to lead to mistakes, it's just... Uh, creating tremendous ill will in communities because you're not doing 200, you know, raids a year all over the county. You're doing those in the very, you know, very low income part of town, which often has people of color versus, you know, the entire county, which um, would spread that out, uh, you know, amongst um, all different populations. But it's, you know, it's the low income areas that are, mm-hmm. are taking the brunt of these of these search warrants. And so I just saw it creating a tremendous ill will in the, in the communities that they were operating like this. Michelle Miao, we're speaking with director Craig Atkinson about his new film, Do Not Resist, a film that focuses on the militarization of police in the United States. And by the way, the film opens up October 21st here in the Bay Area. Um, uh, so I think the Roxy Theater in San Francisco, also the Rialto Cinemas Elmwood in Berkeley. Um, and so, Craig, you know, I, I wanted to ask you, I mean, following uh, or speaking to the SWAT teams who are going out for or being used so many times in this way, do you think that they have a sense that it's excessive? Well, I, you know, I did observe a group of um, officers that were kind of moving away from, you know, the um, the overuse of SWAT, and they were starting to be critical of, of themselves. Um, for example, the, the idea of these no-knock warrants where you run in the house as fast as you can to try to retrieve, um, say, drugs in order to make your case. I mean, in my father's era of uh, SWAT and police, they were required to prove that before entering the home, they could make an arrest. And so if they did find any contraband, that was only uh, a bonus to actually, you know, arresting the individual. But that changed. And what, you know, the frequency of abuse didn't allow for the good police work prior to entering the home. And the shift occurred when instead of, making the case prior to entering the home, the idea was let's run in the house as fast as we can before they have an opportunity to flush, you know, the drugs down the toilet, and then we'll prove that they had drugs in the home. 
And as you can imagine, if you're running in the home trying to clear the entire house in 38 seconds, well, mistakes happen. And, you know, that those mistakes have been very costly for, for citizens. And so there was a group, um, you know, that we met with throughout that started to rethink um, this approach and started to um, create SWAT standards, and that's the National uh, Tactical Officers Association. And so I was encouraged that there are some people working within SWAT to kind of police themselves and to try to meet the community with where they're asking, uh, you know, they're of their police officers, you know, in, in this time, because certainly things have changed. Um, so that that is very encouraging, but I still do think we have a long way to go. Sure, sure. We, we have, uh, you know, big movement groups such as Black Lives Matter who have called attention to this idea of defunding um, the militarization of police here in the United States, whereas, you know, in this election, both presidential candidates have mentioned that we should be putting in more money, um, you know, as far as law enforcement goes, uh, for at least training. Do you, you know, kind of doing this film, I mean, my opinion is that, you know, so much money has gone into law enforcement or, you know, uh, or police state, if you will, it's become like a business. I mean, they've got robots now that can go in and drop, um, gas and or whatever uh what what is your sense i mean it does it or what do you think in kind of making this film should we be focusing on defunding the militarization of police or really maybe refocusing or you know kind of rerouting where the funds go we're going to take a quick break but when we come back we'll continue our conversation with director craig atkinson You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Hey, it's Michelle Miao. It's hard these days not to get a question about when I'm getting married or when I'm having kids. I get it. Marriage equality is legal now. I'm in my 30s and in a committed relationship. Marriage may not have a time limit, but what about having kids? I have a lot I want to accomplish before growing my family, like becoming the next Oprah. If I want to wait, what are my options? Join myself and our partner Pacific Fertility Center for a free seminar on egg freezing November 3rd from 6 to 8 p.m. Register at PacificFertilityCenter.com. Space is limited, so register now. That's PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.ale. G-R-E-C-A-R-E dot com. Allegra Home Care. 
serving your community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Let's continue our conversation with director Craig Atkinson about his new film, Do Not Resist. Sure. Well, I think we definitely have to look at training and the way that we're training officers um, without question. I mean, I think that a lot of the incidences that we're seeing where people are being unnecessarily killed, I think it, it, it does come down, some of it does come down to a training issue because for a long time we've trained officers to kill as a conditioned response. And I think that that really needs to, to be looked at. You know, the other thing, any reforms that are happening to the militarization of police, all the equipment that's been given out isn't coming back. And so that equipment is, is coming, is not coming back. So we need to look at, you know, what's coming in the future. And what we realized uh, during the course of making this film is what we filmed was basically the transition between the war on drugs and the war on terror as it relates to our domestic police forces because the tools of war always come home. And what we saw in 2014 was private companies, you know, who had taken military technology and since retired from the military and now we're in the private sector. And those companies approaching law enforcement agencies and selling direct to them. So there's no policy, no oversight. And sometimes they would require the police department to sign a non-disclosure agreement so they couldn't even tell their citizens, you know, what tools they're using on them uh, against them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we are, everyone's concerned about, you know, um, government oversight. Well, you know, the private sector even has less checks and balances. And so, and that's the, the major trend in law enforcement right now is repurposing the surveillance technology that we've been using in our uh, wars abroad into domestic police forces. And again, you know, it's, it's not about uh, needing more equipment. I mean, Edward Snowden made us uh, aware of that, you know, that we had the most advanced surveillance you know, dragnet um, system that the planet has ever seen prior to the Boston Marathon bombing, prior to the San Bernardino shooting, prior to the Pulse Club nightclub shooting, and most recently here in New York, where I'm from, the, you know, the bomber who uh, recently detonated a bomb in New York City, well, his father had mentioned that he was suspicious of his own son to the FBI, and the FBI interviewed him. But this mm-hmm. is someone who was able to go online onto eBay and purchase citric acid ball bearings and an ignition switch without it flagging the, the, the greatest surveillance system that the world has ever seen. When the Electronic Frontier Foundation uh, looked into the sneak and peek provision of the Patriot Act um, in 2013, and that's the provision in the Patriot Act, which allows law enforcement to come into your home without telling you and then subsequently telling you about it after the fact. Well, there was 11,000 warrants issued and mind you, this was only, you know, put in the Patriot Act to fight terrorism. Well, out of those 11,000, only 51 were used for terrorism. And over 9,000 were used for drug cases. And so, you know, maybe we're not catching these people because we're not using the tools for their intended purpose, which was mm. terrorism, but we're instead using them on drug offenses to lock up people, in, at least with what we show and do not resist, for a gram and a half a week. And so, you know, I don't think it's about more equipment or less equipment. It's about using the equipment to have, one, for the stated purpose, and two, in an effective manner. Mm-hmm. Great point. Great point. Um, which, you know, my next question is really about how the media has spun 
a lot of these cases are incidents of police brutality or, you know, black people who have lost their lives in police custody. Um, and this ongoing, you know, conversation that there is racial bias within uh, law enforcement, within, you know, police here in the United States. In this film, do you address that at all? Does it come up? Well, you know, we, we looked at something a little bit different. I mean, obviously, yes, the media is spinning these things out of control, and, and they like to try to point it to just one incident that uh, is indicative of the anger and frustration of decades long of mistreatment of the community, like they wanted to, you know, reduce the um, events in Ferguson down to uh, an issue with Michael Brown and the officers. And when I was in Ferguson, Yes, there was plenty of people there for protesting the killing of, of Mike Brown, but there was an entire community there that was protesting the unjust policing that they've been experiencing for months and for, for years and years and years, for decades. You know, and, and the media like to point it to, to one issue to try to bifurcate it, and to try to create a divide and conquer mm-hmm. um, situation. But, you know, the community is protesting long-term mistreatment from law enforcement, and rightfully so in the St. Louis County because you have a for-profit policing system where departments are required to raise huge portions of their operating revenue for the next year by ticketing citizens this year. So you're treating citizens like ATMs, and you're asking the cops to be the tax collectors. I've talked to plenty of cops in Ferguson that were like, we didn't sign up to be tax collectors. And so you think about the number of incidences that police wouldn't have with citizens if they weren't required to go out there and and, and raise revenue. Mm -hmm. There's a town right next to Ferguson called Jennings, uh, by the name of Jennings. They lost $1 million in sales tax revenue one year because they lost a shopping center. Well, the very next year, they raised a $1 million more money from taking their citizens. And you just think, how many times, you know, would those police-citizen interactions, you know, turn to violence or turn to an unjust, you know, stop? Well, you can imagine that many of them did. And so if you reduce the number of times that police would have to go out raise operating revenue for their citizens, well, you would already reduce the number of you know, use of force incidences that that department would have. Well, then that's a bigger question. But then we have to ask ourselves, why are our communities failing and why is there no money in our communities that require you know, police to go out and do this style of policing? And that goes back to the biggest questions of them all, of, you know, how are we spending money in our country while well, we're spending it all on defense for wars that don't really equate any, you know, to, to anything that of benefit for the American people. And now those tools of war have come home and we've spent all of our money. So mm-hmm. no wonder why communities are failing. And so this is the, the bigger cycle that I think our film starts to get at, um, showing the full cycle of the military equipment deployed and then returning home and then how it's actually being used. Oh, I can't wait to see it. This is... Um... It's just so timely. It's so perfect for what we're going through right now. I know you've got something to run to, so I have one question for you left, if that's okay. Um, And, you know, and that has to do with uh, kind of, you know, what do you want people to get out of it? Obviously, we're at a place where it feels like almost every day we're hearing um, of someone who has died in police custody. And at the same time, we're hearing ongoing conversations of how dangerous it's out there for police officers. So I really feel like as a country, we really got to come together to do something about this. What are your thoughts about, you know, what we should do and what do you want people to get out of it? Your film. Yeah. 
Well, you know, it, it is um, timely, and it's timely very unfortunately so. I mean, before we, when we were in Ferguson, having started a year prior, we thought for sure by the time that we got this film out two years later that there would be significant reform. But here we are, and, and there aren't. And so, you know, for both people in communities who are working hard to change policing, and, you know, we're, we're not really saying anything new with this film. We just had an opportunity to show some of the unjust policing practices that have, that, that have been going on. So I hope that it serves as a visual example of some of the frustrations that people have been saying for decades. And for law enforcement, uh, for, the, for those in law enforcement that are working hard to change the culture of policing, I also hope that this is a visual example of some of the reforms that need to take place because there are groups of officers who are working hard to change their culture. That's just very difficult because of it's, it's, it's such an ingrained culture. We had the opportunity to screen at the John Jay um, Criminal Justice College here in New York. Uh, 300 students were in attendance. Many were um, current NYPD officers. And many got up publicly and thanked us for making the film and said it reflected the truth. And so I'm hoping to use the film as a, a dialogue starter in uh, police academies, too, because I think that we need to get this message to the very people who are going to be out patrolling our streets, you know, in, in the years to come. So, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully that this provides a visual example for people uh, on both sides of the issue, because you're absolutely right. We're in this, you know, situation where cops are being put against citizens, and it's a situation where... You know, there's, there's, there's many issues beyond um, just surface issues that um, I think we need to look at in order to create lasting reforms. So I'm hoping that people on both sides are going to use this film purposefully, you know, in a true forwarding way, not just um, in, in a way to point figures. So that's what we're working hard to make sure happens. Craig, thank you so much for spending some time with us. We'll let you go. Um, I know you're a busy guy. And thank you so much for this film. Great. Thank you so much for being interested and in, in giving us a chance to speak with your audience. I, I really appreciate it. And it's, it's do not resist film.com if anyone's uh, interested in following up on our progress. Awesome. Yes. Uh, go ahead and visit do not resist.com. Um, I'm sorry, do, do not, not resist, resist film. 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 <laughs> yeah, sorry, got it. Do cool. not resist film.com. So Thanks, Craig. And right. if All you want to. If you want to see the film, it opens up October 21st here in the Bay Area, and that's the Roxy Theater in San Francisco or the Rialto Cinemas um, Elmwood in Berkeley. Don't go away. The show continues right after this. I am Chuck Spence. I'm the owner of the Maui Ski Resort, and I'm also vice president of Maui Pride. It's not just the only LGBT resort in Maui, it's the only LGBT resort in all of Hawaii, which is really kind of amazing. Maui Sunseeker actually started years and years before I even got involved. I came along as one of the owners a little bit later in in life. I came to Maui back in 1978 and absolutely loved the island. I fell in love and I thought, this is where I want to live, this is where I want to be. And so from 1978 until 2008, I finally came alive with the dream and bought the Maui Sunseeker because I realized that this would be the next step in my life and um, thought that this would be an ideal situation because I could do something that, that was my own business rather than making money for other people. 
it's important to have a place where you know you can feel comfortable about yourself you can feel loved and you can feel welcomed by everybody and i think that that's the ambiance that we try to create and and that's the message that that we try to deliver in all of our ads and trying to bring people to maui is that you know we're not just an experience on maui we're an experience of maui when you think back years ago how closeted we used to be and you think about how suppressed we were back then to how open and accepting we are now and and it's it's a good progression for society it's good that people are, are not just you know tolerating but appreciating diversity and that's the message is that we really need to make sure that, that people appreciate diversity I think that whoever you are follow your passion follow what you believe in follow whether it leads you down the path of art or whether it leads you down a path of business or you know, some other aspect of internet creativity. Um, follow that and, and just be passionate about what you do. Spotlight on Success and Achievement is brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years. And uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody. And that's just kind of the attitude and the, the uh, the ethics of Oasis is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need to, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time, so you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? That's just always been my attitude. Um, just to entertain people and so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity and, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for Spotlight you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me here on this Wednesday, this hump day. 
a fantastic interview with director Craig Atkinson. Please, please, please go see the film if you can. It opens up October 21st here in the Bay Area. And uh, if you need that information again, head to do not resist film.com. Our next guest is here with us in studio, and I am honored to call him a friend. I've known him for a very long time. He has done a lot of incredible work in the LGBTQ community, but but now also doing work on a, um, I, I, I guess I, I could say global level, maybe, you know, in terms of the organization that he's with, and that is the Impact Fund. The Impact Fund is an, an organization um, full of lawyers, attorneys, who help people fight for social justice, economic justice, and uh, all of those issues. So we'll hear more from him. Teddy Basham Witherington. Teddy, thanks so much for being here with me. It's good to be here with you, Michelle. Yeah, you know what? Actually, I'm going to have you pull the mic a little bit closer to you if you can, mm-hmm. just so that we can hear you loud and clear. Okay. Um, so yeah, so I did kind of like a general description of the Impact Fund, but tell us, what exactly do you do? <laughs> um, well, the Impact Fund has been around for 24 years. And um, we are a nonprofit that um, is dedicated to economic, environmental, racial, and social justice. And the way that um, we support that is through something called impact litigation, which basically means legal cases that um, advance, you know, either uh, environmental um, issues, um, uh, uh, civil rights and um, pursues a, an anti-poverty objective. Um, and what I do at the Impact Fund, I've been there two years now, is um, I look after our uh, fundraising and uh, communications work. Mm-hmm. Now, can we talk about some of the cases um, that the Impact Fund is working on? Uh, sure, yeah. We, um, we, we both fund and support cases, and we actually... Uh, litigate a few cases of our own. So when I when I say fund, we are a grant making organization, and um, we fund um, various cases, and we also act as um, counsel to other um, cases that are going on. So, for example, right now, as some of your viewers may may know, there's a particularly pernicious law on the books that was recently enacted in North Carolina called HB two, mm-hmm. the so called bathroom bill. Um, and there was a curious decision that came out of the district court, and it's headed for appeal. And um, uh, my colleague, Lindsay, who's our uh, director of litigation, she'll be authoring um, what's called an amicus brief, um, which is um, a brief that's filed with the court um, with information that's pertinent to the case. Although we're not a party to the, the case itself, we'll be filing an amicus brief on some of the uh, legal issues in support of the uh, contention that, that that law should not stand. You know, it's um, interesting to hear you talk about that specific uh, situation, HB2, because that's been on top of a lot of our minds, especially if you're doing work in the LGBTQ equal rights movement. There's so many of these policies and these laws that these states are are trying to uh, pass or, or or get by that would end up discriminating LGBTQ people. So it seems like it's almost like a backward step. But, um, you know, with regards to the impact fund and what you guys do, I, I, I kind of feel like this has been 
part of the playbook for the LGBTQ um, movement and our fight for equal rights and that we have to fight in the courtroom or from a legal perspective, right? Um, sometimes, you know, it depends on your, your theory of social change. And um, certainly um, we've seen that um, some elected officials are more susceptible to lobbying and to um, direct action. Um, but also, you know, a lot of um, social change happens through landmark decisions in court. And that's what we saw with um, marriage equality, for instance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's what we saw with the Loving case um, around uh, marriage. And it's also what we saw in Brown v. Board of Education. Um, and that, that, that happens because sometimes legislatures get into a position where they're unable to act. And a classic example of that right now would be on the issue of gun violence, where we have um, uh, a, a legislature a legislature and a, a Congress that is all for, for all intents and purposes moribund on the issue. And so when you see that, what you, what you tend to see is more action mm. in the judicial branch. Sure. Um, people are bringing cases because they are frustrated. They have tried the accepted way of, of influencing public opinion and influencing your, your elected representatives. But when that doesn't work, thankfully, we still have this other branch of government. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so there's a lot that's going on right now, for instance, on, on gun violence. There are many cases around the country. And, you know, post-Orlando, right. um, suddenly I think for many LGBTQ people, gun rights and, and gun violence suddenly became an issue. Of course, it was already an issue mm-hmm. for many LGBTQ people, particularly um, LGBTQ African-Americans. I was at a panel at Netroots Nation uh, yeah. This year, with um, uh, some some queer LGBT folks, and uh, and they express their their frustration with that fact. It's like you know, this has been an issue. Gun violence has been an issue for us in our community for a long time, and now suddenly it is an LGBTQ writ large issue. Um, and that kind of goes to, I think, for me, the heart of of the matter, which is that social justice is an LGBTQ issue. Right. LGBTQ issues are social justice issues. And very simply, because as LGBTQ people, we are everywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, we are the poor. We are the homeless. You know, we are Asian. We are disabled. Right. Um, And so thankfully, something that I've witnessed during my lifetime has been the fact that we are now um, more able to embrace all our identities mm-hmm. as individuals. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I have I have different identities, you have different right. identities, but they can be whole in one fabulous person and we don't have to segment ourselves. Correct. And um, we can have a more holistic view of social justice, I think, for that reason. So if we applied that to the work that Impact Fund does, mm-hmm. um, which you just beautifully summed up, you know, intersectionality and how many of these issues, especially socioeconomic issues, um, are inclusive of the LGBTQ community. What other cases uh, could you give us us examples of that Impact Fund is working on from an economic level and or, you know, other social justice issues? Yeah. um, You know, recently, um, sorry, just just to to sort of rewind, another reason why um, sometimes the courts are seen as a last option is because it can take a much longer period of time. Mm-hmm. 
particularly if you have a, a complicated um, public interest litigation. So the example I'll, I'll give you is in the state of Ohio, um, where coming out of the, the 90s and into the early part of the century, I think the culture was definitely on punishing youth that made poor decisions. And so what that led to in Ohio and elsewhere is basically a warehousing of youth in a school-to-prison pipeline via the Department of Youth Services. Mm -hmm. So many of those kids have um, problems at home. Many of those kids, it so happens, also turn out to be LGBTQ and mm -hmm. are disproportionately affected. And so what we did, working with um, the Children's Law Center, Inc., um, in Ohio, was um, sent in a, a team of uh, investigators who, who discovered there was much that was wrong. You know, there was no um, a system of, of mental health or, or treatment for these kids. Um, the staff were improperly trained and, and resorted to violence more often than they should. And you had these great big facilities rather than a more kind of residential-based care. And so, and so what basically was happening was that these kids were being manufactured into, in, in, into tomorrow's career criminals. And so we worked with them to, um, in, in, a, in a case where litigation was used as the, the leverage mm. to get the state authorities to come to the table and to negotiate a settlement which addressed all of these issues. So, you know, at the start of the litigation, there were literally thousands of kids who were in solitary confinement. Oh, my. Um, and, you know, even as a, a well-informed person, when I found out that kids were being put in solitary confinement, I was horrified. And the scale of it was just unimaginable. That has been reduced to, you know, a very small uh, amount and for very small periods of time. You had, in some cases, kids that had been in solitary confinement for months. Mm. And, you know, you take some damaged people and in a system damage them even more. So we, we were very uh, grateful to be a part of that and bring around um, uh, wholesale change um, in the, uh, the state of Ohio. Um, and then, you know, another um, area to touch on is, is immigration. Um, I think, you know, there are, uh, obviously it's a very live issue in terms of the, the national consciousness. And um, I think what people might tend to forget is the is particularly the uh, trans dimension when it comes to immigration, right? And how trans people are disproportionately um, affected when when put into facilities, ICE facilities, and the, and the tremendous harm and damage and suffering that that occurs there. So, um, you know, two of our partners, the Mexican American Legal Defense and Education Fund and, and the Transgender Law Center, actually just filed a case mm -hmm. um, a couple of days ago against Governor Mike Pence. Right. I um, heard about that. Which uh, I'm sure you'll have Chris on your show to, yeah. to talk about that more. So I won't go into, into uh, detail. But it's cases like that that the Impact Fund supports and wants to support. Um, so if your if your listeners are thinking, I know of a situation or there's this organization I know and when we're looking for some kind of support, please reach out to us because we'd love to hear from you. And you can do that by heading to impactfund.org. Um, 
I wanted to touch on, you know, so some we we went through some examples of your cases. So immigration, um, broken, I guess, you know, I had always talked about this here on the program, a broken criminal justice system uh, that definitely continues to discriminate against the most marginalized LGBTQ and people of color, LGBTQ people of color, mm. even that, you know, are you finding I guess, you know, what my my question is, it, it's not like these cases come every X amount of years. I think that there are a lot of issues with a lot of things that are broken here in this country. It's sad to say that the there there might be a large number of these types of cases that exist here in this country. And when you take an organization like Impact Fund, and that's what it's supposed to do, make an impact mm. today... I mean, can we talk about the progress that that uh, that you know we look forward to that we are making? Well, I think you know the it comes down to strategy as well because just as in any other kind of social justice battle, there has to be a strategy. Mm-hmm. And when you're dealing with the court system, there's a strategy there. You know, there there are certain you know that the, the the country is divided up into different circuits, and you know that if you have a big issue, it'll probably be appealed. And so and so you end up um, at a, a, a circuit court or at a state supreme court. And so you have to have a strategy about timing and about the issue because it could be, you know, hugely dispiriting and a, and a big waste of everyone's time and money if you pursue a case to a court that is not likely, you're not likely to have any chance of success with. Mm-hmm. So part of what we do at the Impact Fund and one of the services that we offer to people who approach us is help them figure out their case strategy and their Mm. legal argument so that the cases that we support are the ones that have, hopefully, a better chance of success. Now, a classic example, of course, is the Supreme Court of the United States. And and we all know that that until the the passing of Justice Antonin Scalia, there was, to, to most, all, most intents and purposes, a conservative majority, although sure, yeah. Kennedy was obviously a very important swing vote in the uh, marriage equality cases. So again, while the court is balanced in this 4-4 situation, you know, there are definitely cases coming up. Um, you know, people are tempted to think that this upcoming term of the Supreme Court might be a bit of a snooze fest because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are... And certainly in the LGBT realm, two cases um, coming up. The first one is, is, is Gavin's case from Virginia. Um, um, Gavin, of course, being the, the trans man who wanted to use the, the, the male restroom at his school. That, and the Supreme Court issued a stay, which means that the law can't be enforced for the moment until the matter is reviewed. And then the court's going to look in 10 days' time to see whether it takes that case up. <laughs> and that's going to be a really telling moment, and it's going to tell us whether or not this Supreme Court, in a four-four, or still for me five-three, has an appetite for taking on trans rights in this session. So that right. could be huge. And then, of course, there's the I don't want to bake a cake for oh, those the, guys. Um, the the lesbians and gays and bisexuals and transgender and queer people case, and. Um, that's, we don't have a date for that yet, but later on in this term, the justices will decide if they're going to take up that case too. 
Uh, yeah, you know, I will have to tell you, the marriage equality fight certainly has educated me on a little bit of the process and the process of appealing and making a decision or staying on a decision. That was like the most confusing thing ever, especially in California, because we were kind of doing a flip floppy thing. Um, mm. I'm going to take a quick break right here. But when we come back, I want to hear more about Impact Fund, the work that you do and how people can support. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Teddy Basham Witherington. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Hey, it's Michelle Miao. It's hard these days not to get a question about when I'm getting married or when I'm having kids. I get it. Marriage equality is legal now. I'm in my 30s and in a committed relationship. Marriage may not have a time limit, but what about having kids? I have a lot I want to accomplish before growing my family, like becoming the next Oprah. If I want to wait, what are my options? Join myself and our partner Pacific Fertility Center for a free seminar on egg freezing November 3rd from 6 to 8 p.m. Register at PacificFertilityCenter.com. Space is limited, so register now. That's PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.ale. G-R-E-C-A-R-E dot com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me here today on this hump day. Uh, we have Teddy Basham Witherington, who's the de- development director as well as the director of communications for Impact Fund. And we're talking about the work that Impact Fund does. And uh, I was just telling Teddy, it's like when you think about some of these large cases, uh, especially like marriage equality, for example, you hear ACLU or you hear of, you know, these other fancy nonprofit organizations that have lawyers um, involved in the cases. But I actually didn't know that Impact Fund also have had an, a hand in some of these major cases. Yeah, thanks uh, for that, Michelle. Um, in fact, we are, we're, we're small but extremely mighty. We have an entire staff of nine people. Um, <laughs> and uh, we often partner um, with the ACLU and others mm-hmm. as what's called co-counsel. So when there's a case, we may um, uh, 
um, help with the, um, the legal argument with that, or we may support in other ways through our grant program or providing some education and training, particularly to uh, young lawyers who have decided that they want to pursue a career in um, public interest litigation. And um, not, not all of the litigation that we support are class actions, but the majority are. And I want to explain a little bit about class actions, because sometimes when people think of class actions, they think of a consumer class mm-hmm. actions, um, when there's some dispute about bank fees or whatever it is. But um, although there are many of those, the same um, rules of the court apply to class actions brought by individuals who are fighting against discrimination under, under Title um, Seven of the Civil Rights Act. So we do a lot of that kind of litigation. And, and you know, it's, it's whereas in, in a, a straightforward legal case, you may have an individual and there may be a change in the law. What we look for is a change in the law but also a large number of people who are impacted by the actual case. Mm -hmm. So that could be maybe as few as 50 people who have been working in a company where they've been denied um, advancement on the basis of gender or or race. Or it could be many tens of thousands of people who are affected in a a particularly large company, for example. So, you know, when we we think of that impact, we think of... um, the ripple effect, both in terms of the number of people that can be included in the class and the change in the law that hopefully will come about um, because of that. Um, and um, uh, something else that, that I, I wanted, wanted to mention, because it was pertinent to what you were talking about earlier, which was um, how we've seen these religious freedom mm-hmm. and bathroom bills erupt out of the states. Right. And there's a reason for that. Um, and the reason is that there has been a lot of creative redistricting um, and attacks on voting rights. And so suddenly what we, what we see in certain states are basically gerrymandered majorities, super majorities, that, that are, to all intents and purposes, undemocratic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, also... Um, the, the, the enemies of reason. And so what you see coming out of these states are these extreme measures often passed in the, in the dead of night in a special session. Right. Um, and um, I think we're going to see more of that. Right. Um, one of the things that, that I've noticed in this current election cycle is just how sharply divided um, our country is. And I think that some of those people are going to feel emboldened no matter what the outcome of the election. So I think it really is going to be a fight by state by gerrymandered state on many of these things. Um, and um, so, you know, we're, we're, we are ready. We actually are supporting a voting rights case in North Dakota, um, which was a particularly pernicious voting rights um, uh, law that was passed, which disproportionately affects Native American right. um, voters. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have to prove residence in order to get whatever permission you need to vote, and you have to have a street address, and you live on a reservation where there aren't any streets, it becomes very difficult right. to um, to meet the requirements of the law. 
You know, um, thank you so much for bringing that up because my next follow-up question to that was just kind of how, um, you know, voting rights and racial bias and this ongoing conversation about racial discrimination here in this country. And so just based off the work that your organization does, you know, what is, I guess, what's top of mind, what strategies are being talked about when it comes to racial discrimination here in this country? And also, um, you know, mistreatment or abuse mm. by police. Um, well, for your, again, for, for your listeners, there is a great blog at our social justice blog about this very issue on, on, on um, systemic racism, um, the, the, the roots of that and the causes of that. And uh, one of the candidates in the first presidential debate, my ears perked up to hear her say the words implicit bias. Mm. And that was very heartening to me because a lot of this does come down to implicit bias, um, and um, which which basically means that all of us have a bias, just that most of us are unaware of it. <laughs> but there are ways and methods of both recognizing it and also addressing it. Now, the 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 challenge for us in the in the legal sphere is to get the judiciary up to date on the science mm -hmm. around implicit bias. That's our biggest challenge, I would say, um, because there has been a lot of really great work that's been done on the science of implicit bias in recent years. Um, but uh, the, um, the science has yet to percolate into really the, the, the uh, full awareness of the, of the judiciary in the way that it should when they're, when they're looking at these cases. Could the same then be applied or the same thought um, maybe not scientific evidence of, of, of this, but I, what I was going to say was, can it also be applied to sexual orientation, gender identity, and how the judicial system here in this country has not really, um, I guess, advanced itself to, to be inclusive of this type of language and or identity or definition. So therefore, it could possibly trip up some cases that involve the LGBTQ community, especially the trans community. Absolutely, yeah. I think it's 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 implications for the the um, um, social justice movement is that all all boats rise with this, um, and um, yeah, it's 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 endemic, mm -hmm. um, and it's nice to hear that it's actually being talked about now in such a public way, um, in a way that. Um, you know, it was it was impossible before. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess, you know, our conversation all drives us to this point, And that is the reason why we need to support organizations like Impact Fund is because you directly work with cases and issues that can change and impact the lives of so many of us. And so, Teddy, you know, tell us, you know, how can people help? How can they support the organization? Thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, the Impact Fund is a national clearinghouse. For, for this kind of litigation. So we are plugged into everyone that we need to be plugged into and they us so that we act as a convener for, for these, uh, for the strategy nationally. Um, and uh, people can, can help us um, in a variety of ways. The most obvious way would be to go to our website, sign up for our newsletter, follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, and then also, you know, through, through that, you'll be able to find all the other ways of participating by becoming a monthly donor for a small amount or, or volunteering 
uh, to help us out at our, our events or uh, in the office. I'm signing up right now. So head to impactfund.org. Teddy, thank you so much for joining us and sharing the work of Impact Fund with our listeners. Thank you, Michelle. Thanks again for tuning in to the Michelle Meow Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. For questions, comments, or if you just want to contact me, head to michellemeow.com. We'll be back at the same time, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time tomorrow on Progressive Voices.